Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What has happened to our hero? Four games, three losses, and Manchester City is no longer on the top of the Premier League. Are the eventual champions not so eventual anymore? Their crosstown rivals, Manchester United, now sit atop the league. We'll discuss whether they're actually any good. Arsenal derails Leicester. Chelsea's defense fails to make the trip to Newcastle. And Liverpool may have given Brendan Rodgers a stay of execution. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. We've seen a change at the top of the Premier League for the first time this season, thanks in part to Tottenham Hotspur, who exploded for four goals in the weekend's first game, handing Manchester City their second straight league loss. To talk about that, I'm joined as always by Lawrence McKenna and Kartik Krishnayer. And since we are talking about City, let's go to you, Kartik. You've seen you've been high on Spurs all season, in fairness, but there's little context where a 4-1 loss for a team that's supposed to be the eventual champions looks good. No, there's little context, especially considering for the first time, and I wrote this uh, on another website, uh, first time since the April 2011 loss at Anfield, the 3-0 loss, uh, City looked bereft of ideas and had a real lack of spirit in the side. We've seen a lack of belief among City's players in some of the dry patches they've had. Last season, we had several dry patches. Uh, The previous year before things got rolling, uh, when uh, remember Manchester City won the title but only spent three or four days atop of the table, and it was at the very end of the season. Uh, They were were bad patches, but never looked this this dispirited. And I attribute that to a lack of leadership on the pitch with company out, hard out, Yaya Torre getting injured. Zabaleta still hasn't played a minute this season. Those are your four most vocal, influential, uh, spiritual players, and all four of them were off, out, out of the side. But Spurs were very good, and Spurs have been getting better. We talked about this last week. Pochettino has decided to go full throttle what he did at Southampton again, bet in a lot of youngsters, sell a lot of veteran players, sell the lights of Capu and, and Paulinho, etc., and, and, and replace them with youngsters like uh, Dele Ali and Ryan Mason, who's injured, and Eric Dyer, who's playing in midfield now, and, uh, and others, Bentelov, who's also injured at this point. So it, it, it's looking good for Spurs. I, I was very impressed with how they responded in the second half and how they responded, actually, when they fell down a goal, even though, obviously, the talking points for most Manchester City fans who don't want to face the reality of the actual defeat is that there were some very questionable calls that led to two of Spurs' goals, which is, which is correct. But still, the performance was shocking. I think a lot of the talking points are going to revolve around Manchester City, partially because of the omissions that you talked about or the absences. I don't think we can call Pablo Zabaleta an omission, nor Vincent Kompany, who was a late scratch for this one. Uh, David Silva still 
hurt by his ankle problem. Lawrence, though, what did you take from this one? It was a very impressive performance by Spurs, but there are obviously a number of talking points around the the prematurely crowned champions. Uh, yes, although I don't know. Did we crown them? I don't uh, know if we yeah, crowned sure, them. I think, it's, I think it's safe to say that we kind of rolled out the red carpet and they were walking towards the throne. And you know what? I was happy about that for a little while. Um, it was nice. But what I did like was the way that in the first half, City showed that identity and then they thought we're going to forget it for the next 60 minutes um and they passed well <laughs> in midfield uh it, de bruyne obviously had that great movement into the back line which led to the first goal and then fernando and fernandinho thought we will not bother to combine from here on out we will look away from the ball when we need it most and we'll uh, basically forget what we we've done best so far this season um, and Spurs worked their way into the midfield. Basically, this was one on the midfield. And then from there out, it gave everyone else the, the, the either the lack of um, backup to build their attack or the complete backup. So Dyer did a great job in midfield of negating uh, the influence of Fernando and Fernandinho and even guys further ahead of that. And then I think it was Barney René who wrote in, in his article. And it was really interesting that he was saying Mourinho is almost you can see him already sort of evilly laughing at the side and sort of going, Remember when I was talking about De Bruyne and those silly things that he does? Hmm. Well, he'll do that now. And it, it, I mean, that must be really frustrating for you, Kartik, because these are almost fundamentals which should be in place. And you'd expect, and we've seen City fulfill those fundamentals this season. And it, it's like you, you wonder why those things have gone. Yeah. And, and, and the thing that I, I'm also getting very annoyed by is that there seems to be a simple narrative among members of the media and City fans who feel like, uh, uh, for some reason, De Bruyne is untouchable, even though he costs more than Sterling, but Sterling is, is, is a problem, to blame Sterling for defeats like this and say, well, he didn't provide anything. Well, he wasn't the guy making the obvious mistakes. In fact, he was the guy who was smart enough to pull up on that first Spurs goal when uh, Walker ran into an offside position to try and get, get the attention of the linesman. Uh, right before De Bruyne played the ball, right to uh, but he didn't uh, play the whistle either, though, did he, Kartik? So that that well, that's, that, that that, that's a way of looking at it. But 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 the criticism that I've seen from a lot of Spurs, uh, from a lot of City supporters, is well, Sterling just isn't very good. He just isn't good enough for this. He can't finish his chances. There is some truth to not finishing chances, but I, I look at the City's attack. The only players that were capable of producing anything in that second half were Sterling and Jesus Navas. And again, there's been a very uh, simple narrative that's developed that Jesus Navas has no end product and he shouldn't have a team and he's not a good enough player to play for a club the level of Manchester City. That's been a very fashionable talking point the last couple of weeks. The, the reality is the only set-piece opportunities City tend to get in games where they're behind come from Navas. Uh, uh, beating someone for pace, no, he can't put in a good cross, we know that, but he draws a corner or he draws a foul. And, and Sterling has started doing that this season. So... Uh, there are there are reasons why Pellegrini continues to play some of the guys he plays going forward. Uh, defensively, we can we can talk about that. That that's a whole other matter. And I think the reality of this result is that four one looks terrible, but when you really look at it, yeah, there are a lot of reasons why we can look at this game and say well deserved victory for Spurs. But as Kartik mentioned, maybe City's four most important players weren't playing. You had some controversial goals. You had some kind of fluky goals, the ball bouncing to Kane the way that it did, him having that finish into an open net. 
deserve three points for Spurs. But Kartik, it gets back to a question that we ended up uh, closing our discussion last week with. How worried should we be about Manchester City? And I'm a little bit more worried about them. I think uh, a lack of depth, particularly in central defense, where Vincent Kompany continues to be maybe the most important person on this team, maybe more important than David Silva. Uh, they it's understandable that they lose this game given the absences. It's not really understandable that they are in a situation halfway through the second half where the game is completely lost. Yeah, and, and company's injury, again, I, I would have signed uh, maybe another veteran like a Dean Michaelis, a, a guy like a Ron Vlar. He's available on a free. That's just the first guy that comes to mind. Maybe just as cover, knowing company has these consistent injury problems. Instead, you're kind of invested in Otamendi and Mangala now. I think Dean Michaelis is much better than both those guys, quite frankly, and he had to cover up again yesterday for a lot of the mistakes other guys are making. And then because people aren't very sophisticated in how they watch central defenders, D. McHales is the last guy they say, see, so they say, oh, it was his fault. Well, in reality, he's the most reliable guy we've got. He's, he's actually more reliable than company in a lot of cases. I, I think the one real concern is the form of Sergio Aguero. He, is, uh, he has created – he's probably had more good, clear-cut chances to score goals this season than any Premier League striker, and he has one goal. And he's missing – he, and even against uh, Sunderland midweek in the League Cup, uh, Sterling set him up beautifully. He rounded the keeper, and uh, he allowed DeAndre Yedlin to, to dispossess him and, and, and then clear the ball off the line. So he's he's not playing with very much confidence, and that wouldn't be a problem typically because City has been used to playing without Aguero for long periods of time uh, because of his injuries. It would not be a problem that Injeco hadn't been sold or loaned or whatever mm. kind of deal that was made. Uh, Wilfred Bone, who's injured now, uh, just not at that level. Just not a guy you can throw on late in a match who's going to get you a late equalizer or winner. Jekko did it so many times in the Premier League. Uh, uh, almost Ule Gunnar Solskjaer-like. Maybe not quite at that level, but next best thing. And you've given that up, and if you're in a tight title race, that's... Uh, that's a guy I think Manchester mm. City, ultimately, the guy they're going to miss the most. Yeah, maybe when David Silva comes back, we see him uh, deployed as a false nine, as we've seen him play a couple times for Spain. You know, we have to do a little bit of a mea culpa on this, uh, Kartik. Last week, we were so high on Dean McAllis and, and hinting that just his pure presence might lend some leadership to the back line. Well, he was there this week. It didn't really help. In fact, their defensive performance seemed a little bit worse. But, but you do have to admit, though, I mean, some of the goals as well are... Yeah, I, I think even Pochettino maybe highlighted it afterwards. He wasn't even particularly happy with Spurs' performance, despite the result. And he sort of said in previous weeks, you know, we've not been lucky enough. And they, he then hinted this week, oh, we have been mm-hmm. lucky this time. Yes. Some shots from outside the box, etc. Which maybe aren't necessarily the to blame for Dimichaelis. I mean, again, I'll put it down to De Bruyne's sort of... High, not, it wasn't a high-risk pass, but it was a risky pass to make. And there's a defender... Like, there's not very much you can do if one of your best players and your, one of your most expensive players is making silly decisions in deep positions. It so much went wrong on that play, too. You could still make mm. the argument that Caballero should have been able to stop what wasn't a, a well-hit shot. But things like that happen in soccer games. And like Pochettino pointed out, maybe some luck was due to swing back their way. And that seems to be the question that lingers from this, Lawrence. Spurs probably well, It all evens itself out over the season, doesn't you would, it, Richard? You would think so. I mean, Spurs' yeah. Spurs' main problem was that they weren't actually converting their play into goals. You finally get Erickson back. You have Son in the lineup. And all of a sudden, you have four goals. But the underlying question is how much does this reflect their actual talent level and as you were hinting maybe it doesn't reflect it that much because there was some luck involved yeah exactly although the harder the work the harder you work the luckier you are so um i I still think that there's a lot of credit to go to spurs on this one um you know they in the midfield especially i think we should emphasize the grinding of the likes of dyer and also the excellent performance lamella put in the positional um sense of all those players and 
you know, they didn't make them look ordinary, but they certainly managed to out- outplay a very talented side um, and managed to out-hustle them, I think, for a majority of the game. And you were talking about positionally, Deli Ali shifting to that Shuttler's role in the four-two-three-one. Uh, it's a role that you usually associate with somebody with a little bit more experience, and he's given a lot of versatility to that Spurs team. But there's going to be more to say about Spurs perhaps uh, later in the show when we do our top fours. We'll have to explain whether we do or don't include Tottenham in our top fours because they, based on Saturday's performance, have an argument for being in that group. Uh, ultimately, it was a huge win for Tottenham, a mild setback for City, but it was only the first of nine matches this weekend, a weekend that continued on Saturday in Leicester, where the league's last undefeated team scored first against Arsenal. A sometimes ridiculously open game produced six more goals, five of them going into the Gunners' column as a hat-trick from Alexis Sanchez gave Arsenal a 5-2 win over the Foxes. Liverpool took the field against Aston Villa knowing the pressure was on Brendan Rodgers and responded within two minutes with a goal from James Milner. Daniel Sturridge added a brace, but Villa's Rudy Justed added a brace of his own, leaving the Reds to survive with a 3-2 victory. Manchester United got goals from Memphis, Wayne Rooney, and Juan Mata in a 3-0 win over Sunderland. Southampton continued Swansea's building swoon with a 3-1 win at St. Mary's. Stoke finally broke into the win column with a 2-1 win over visiting Bournemouth. West Ham got a stoppage time goal from Chekou Kiyate to salvage a 2-2 draw with visiting Norwich. And Chelsea came back from a two-goal second-half deficit to earn a point at Newcastle 2-2. On Sunday, a late penalty from Naom at Vicarage Road allowed Johan Kabai to give Crystal Palace a 1-0 win over Watford. At the top of the league, we have a new leader, Manchester United's fifth win in seven games. Have them one point up on City. West Ham and Arsenal occupy the next two spots, two points back of United, while Tottenham, Palace, and Leicester are a point back of them on 12 points each. When we come back, we'll shift our focus to St. James's Park, where Chelsea had to rally to take a point from the wingless Magpies. But first, let's talk about our sponsor. Now, if you're a big fan of watching the Premier League on TV, you're probably like us and end up listening to the same commentary teams every week. Maybe it's time to change things up. That's why I think you should take some time to check out Rabble.tv because it's going to be a new way to augment your TV experience. Rabble.tv is a place to listen to live match commentaries from real fans while games are being played, and the way it works is simple. All you have to do is tune into your game but press the mute button on your television. Then head over to Rabble.tv to listen to soccer fans providing their own call. Or, better yet, you can create your own broadcast and call one of your team's games just by signing up for free and switching on your mic. Look, you're probably on Twitter or Facebook or some other form of social media where your friends are doing something with Rabble. Or if you follow World Soccer Talk, you know our writers are doing commentaries with Rabble all the time. The next time you see one of them, why don't you give it a try? Click and tune in. You can listen to the podcast. Give it a go. Give it a go. Kartik does a show every week. We have other writers that do commentaries on the weekends. And you can listen on your desktop, through your iOS app, through your mobile browser. Just be spontaneous. Try something new. Or better yet, be the person that is doing that something new. Go to Rabble.tv, sign up today, where it's your team, and it's your call. Kartik, I did allude to your show there. Why don't you tell us what's going on with Divers and Cheats? Yeah, we had, a, we had an interesting show this past week talking a little bit about uh, English clubs and European uh, competition and how while the romantic in all of us wants English clubs to do well in Champions League and compete with the Barcelonas and the Real Madrids and the Bayerns, the practical reality is the domestic competition in England is a lot more lucrative than the domestic competition in those countries. And sometimes uh, pragmatic realities dictate that uh, Premier League and domestic results come first, whereas it's not always the case for continental clubs. So we had a good discussion on that. 
I have to say, Ravel is now developing some critical mass with, with soccer commentary and soccer shows. So uh, I encourage everybody to, to check out Ravel. Just go to the website and uh, you'll find some things that you don't you wouldn't believe. Uh, pro- programs about Blackpool, programs about Leeds, programs about German clubs, uh, pro- programs about the NASL. I do a, a program about the NASL, programs about uh, MLS all the time and, and, and commentary from our World Soccer Talk personalities on MLS and Bundesliga games. So uh, gr- gr- great platform now for all your soccer needs uh, as far as audio is concerned it travel speaking of the nasl uh, newcastle had been performing at an nasl level coming into this weekend uh pressure was really on steve mclaren uh nasl <laughs> sorry sorry nasl you haven't you have enough people detracting uh your your product uh <laughs> hate to associate it with uh what was one of the winless teams and still one of the winless teams coming out of the weekend but uh kartik let's go ahead and start with you on this Pressure building on Steve McLaren, board members coming out apologizing to fans via email, 2-2 draw against visiting Chelsea. How much does this supply any relief for Steve McLaren? Good uh, response from the players to come out. Uh, this this uh, came after a midweek uh, game where they, well, they lost to a lower league team at, at St. James Park. I cannot remember who it was in the League Cup for the life of me, but they uh, they lost to somebody in the Championship or League One. and they uh, Wednesday, uh, they, Sheffield Wednesday. Oh, they lost to Sheffield yeah. Wednesday, right, which was... Uh, Great, great moment for Wednesday, uh, who has had a, a storied history in these domestic cups, just not recently. Uh, the uh, the big issue, though, I think going forward for McLaren is he, he's having a hard time kind of integrating the new signings into the team that he inherited. We saw some signs that that that's uh, that of that changing in in the first sixty minutes of this game, but. They got a result that was that was important, but I think the result was equally important for Chelsea because uh, I saw a spirit of fight back from Chelsea that we haven't seen all season from them. Mm. And maybe maybe it's not having Diego Costa acting out on the pitch. I don't know, but they looked very mm. mature, very poised in coming back. And uh, at the end, we're probably unfortunate not to take all three points. Lawrence, I want to talk about Chelsea though. Um, Never mind. <laughs> when I watched the game between these two teams, it just looked like two mediocre to bad teams playing. And I looked player for player, cliche that I use often, drink everybody, uh, and you see Cesc Fabregas, you see Eden Hazard, you see William, you see all of these players performing below their levels of last year. Is the answer to the question, what's wrong with Chelsea, really just the simplest one in the book? The players just don't seem to be that good anymore? Uh no, it, it isn't because they are still clearly good players. They have flashes of brilliance. I, I do but think. It's, where are these flashes of brilliance? Even their goals this weekend were pretty much preventable goals. Well, I suppose you could argue that any goal would be preventable uh, if you're playing point. a system. Uh, it's, it's also just preventable by watching the ball come to you if you're a goalkeeper and not getting distracted right. by Will Ramirez's run in front of you. Yeah, no, I suppose so. I, I suppose you're, you're right in what you're saying. I suppose it's subjective, yeah. isn't it? Um, and you'd argue that in previous seasons, Chelsea have almost built their identity around this. Um, I don't know. It, it's not. Yeah. Re- it doesn't feel like Mourinho's ever flying by the seat of his pants. But there's mm-hmm. kind of a a feeling of like we're. It's, you know, obviously there's that us against the world mentality. But it's also you know we're almost making it up as we go along here, guys. There's like an act to this. You know, we if we all buy into it, then we'll get <laughs> through this and we'll make we'll make our season work. Mm-hmm. And there's something along those lines where you sort of think. Well, you know that that sort of runs out of steam, and we've said it for week yeah. after week. Um, and the problem with both these sides was that Chelsea didn't look like they were up for fighting against Newcastle. The Newcastle looked like they were up for, for excuse me, fighting against Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Um, and for both those sides, that's not 
necessarily where most people would say the motivation for these teams should be coming from, right? Mm-hmm. I, I guess I shouldn't imply that Ramirez's goal was preventable. It was just kind of a fluky. It was a, great goal. It was a, it was a fluky goal. It was a great. It was definitely a great goal. I don't think Newcastle has any, or Tim Krul have anything to apologize for for that. But Kartik, I want to build on what Lawrence is saying. You know, when Mourinho took over this team from Benitez two years ago, we thought that this was going to be a group that the core was going to have to transition out because of age and diminishing play, and probably uncharacteristically, Mourinho was going to have to be in charge of a rebuilding process. And it didn't really happen. They kind of augmented that core. Mourinho's gotten two very good seasons out of them. And now they're kind of performing at the level we would have expected if that arc from Di Matteo and Benitez had continued. So let me throw this out there as a theory. Maybe Mourinho is actually still a really great coach that got completely underappreciated results out of a core that is just now starting to perform along along the lines of its aging trend. Yeah, maybe that's certainly true with guys like Oscar and Ramirez who inherited who were seemed like very much second-tier players, not title-winning type players that would play key roles in title-winning teams. There was some luck involved. I think they were able to snatch Willian from, from Spurs at the last minute, and he, he played a really pivotal role in them winning the title last season. Uh, obviously, he, he was able to get Matic back, uh, which was not something we expected, and, and he had such a good season. So maybe there has been some luck involved. Maybe there's been some magic from Mourinho. Uh, getting the, these uh, top-notch performances out of out of the players that he has been. I, I think the great frustration about Chelsea, and why I still think they have a good shot at this title, is because I think Aiden Hazard has not played anywhere near his level. No. And, and if he does, I still think Chelsea are going to be one of the toughest teams to beat in this league. Now, it is possible, taking your, your theory a step further, that Hazard is simply not as good as as we thought he was when he was at Lille. And he's been underwhelming for the Belgian national team, who, who have a lot of guys they could replace him with. Actually, he's not assured of a spot in that team. Whereas at Chelsea, there's no one else they can they can they can play that would replace him. Uh, maybe maybe Hazard's not the player we thought he was. That we're gonna have to start asking that question uh, if this this sort of form continues. From one other quick point, I think Cesc Fabregas again looks just. They may have to make a. They might have to make Mike buy in January of a central midfielder, and if not, I'm sure they will next summer. He just he just has passed it. Yeah, interesting. I, I completely agree. What about you, Lawrence? What would you do with Fabregas right now? Uh, I, I think I'd pair him up. I'd look for a different pairing with him. Um, I feel a little bit like it's. I mean, it's harsh to say let's just drop him and find someone else. Um, and uh, essentially, Mourinho has to get the best out of the squad that he's working with right now, so he doesn't have another option to drop him. Although, I mean. I actually quite like I like Ramirez in the combination with someone else. I like the way that Ramirez makes the team move forward, actually. And I also um, think you could drop Oscar into that role, depending on who you have next to him. I think you could drop Matic into central defense and start uh, John Obi Mikel. They have a couple of kids they could start there. But uh, I think if you are planning on still competing for a title, I think Chelsea is Chelsea is what, 12th or 13th come after yeah. the result this weekend. Um, if you are tr- planning to make that up, you really have to play your team with the highest upside and having Sesco come back to an all league form is really where your upside still is. Yeah. But you also, I also think that they've not consistently had, I mean, this is partly where buying Diego Costa is coming to bite them. Um, that they've not consistently had a front line, which looks like it's going to get the best out of, uh, Fabregas as well, because what we're doing is we're putting the responsibility on Fabregas, which I understand he's not really fulfilling that. But at the same time, you wonder how are they looking to fulfill what Fabregas wants to do? Hmm. Let's, let's shift to, uh, Let's shift to Leicester now. Uh, Kartik, the thing that came into my mind when I'm watching this, it, these buzz terms that we've used around Arsenal, uh, 
lack of steel, naivete, I think if you just shift that and think of it in terms of overconfidence, it all becomes part of the same thing because we saw Leicester here play their game against a team that is arguably more suited to play that game. And the result was Arsenal scoring five on the road, handing Leicester their first loss. I just wonder if Arsenal went up against a big team with the same kind of approach that Leicester did on Saturday, if we wouldn't be just deriding Arsene Wenger for his naivete. We probably would be, actually. You're right. Uh, Although, I have to say, Leicester got a goal early from Vardy. They very easily could have had two more. They were all over Arsenal that first 15 minutes, and it was... uh... It was pretty stunning to see. Yeah, they hit two how, posts. Yeah, they hit two posts and and, uh, and and were just bossing the game. And then Arsenal, it's funny because for years, Wenger derided Ferguson and Mourinho and, and the, even when Ancelotti was managing Chelsea, uh, that they would have all the all of the ball and these teams would counterattack on them and, uh, and beat them. But then Arsenal, just a lethal counterattack, uh, equalizes. And then they, 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 they really kind of used that formula for the rest of the match. And they were getting goals... Uh, uh, when the match was stretched, and, and they've gotten more pragmatic. There's no question about that. We see that with some of these away results they've gotten the last few seasons. And we've been talking about it, and this was achieved with uh, without Coquelin and, and with uh, with uh, Arteta having to play the bulk of the minutes. Mm-hmm. So that was a good sign. But, yeah, I think you're right. We would deride uh, Wenger if, if, if he had approached this match the way Ranieri did. But uh, Leicester has been on such a good run. Why not give it a go? Yeah, and they're Leicester too, so they probably didn't look at this match as one they were going to get three points in at the beginning of the season, maybe get one, but with some points in the bank, why not give it a try rather than uh, breaking up the rhythm of the team? Uh, But Lawrence, let's talk about Arsenal for a little bit, because if we're going to keep looking at Leicester, we're probably going to overlook the fact that Leicester was one of the undefeated, well, the only undefeated in the team, uh, team in the league coming into the weekend. Arsenal had to go on the road, and ultimately they scored five goals, um, and perhaps more impressively against Leicester held them to two, because Leicester's been giving up goals everywhere. Are we, are we in danger of overlooking the value of this performance, or is this just another example of Arsenal rising to the occasion against a team that's not, not really one of the big teams in the league? Well, it was a fantastic performance from Alexis Sanchez. Um, you know, a, a great hat. would have been a complete hat trick had he changed feet uh, for the first goal. I think. Um, I, I think what you're what you're getting at there is really that Arsenal can put in these kind of performances, but putting them in on a consistent basis, and then uh, believing that they are actually building towards something is is the difference. And I do think there were there were a lot of great individual performances in this. I'm still questioning the shape of Arsenal's midfield and how well it's working for the overall side and whether it's going to work consistently against better teams in the league. Um, I think Ranieri did almost flag this before. I think he was a little bit fearful of the way that Arsenal would obviously play this Leicester team and how he would be able to counter that. And I think he knew that before because he almost flagged it in all of his press conferences. He was like, listen, expect us to lose here. And I'm going to do it in a really friendly way. Yeah, he kind of talked um, up Arsenal and Wenger before the game. Yeah, massively. Um, and I, you know, I think that's partly out of respect between the two of them. Hmm. But I think it's also, you know, from the years that he knew him before as well. But I also think it's down to um, the fact that he knew that they wouldn't be able to match them in quite a few areas. Um, but then you also look at the, like you say, conceding goals against the likes of Leicester. I mean, that's disappointing for this Arsenal side hmm. because, you know, getting ripped apart like that, I know by people who are in form and by, you know, they've done that to other teams in the Premier League. But you do end up questioning again if Arsenal want, with the aspirations they have, should that be happening? 
Yeah, they gave up two goals, which is indictment enough, but they had the two posts hit early. Petrcheck came up with some big exactly. saves late. Their defense was worse than a two-goal performance, and I suppose you should should expect that when you have your two midfielders in front of them are Mikel Arteta and Santi Cazorla. On the other side, Drinkwater and Conte did not have good games either, stopping Arsenal. It was like a game from before the age of the defensive midfielder, and it's kind of refreshing to watch, if a little bit ridiculous. Let's go to Old Trafford. Last game we're going to talk about this segment, Lawrence. This is becoming a pretty typical Manchester United performance ever since they found a way to actually score goals. Three to nothing, no real threat from Sunderland, pretty controlled, if um, if a bit plotting at the beginning performance from Manchester United, uh, and now they're at the top of the league. So, so just in general, how do you feel about Manchester United now? I think to this point, none of us considered them real title contenders, but uh, here we are. They're one point up on City. Yeah, a point. Genuinely, I don't look at the table until 10 games in, um, and I'm still frustrated maybe when talking about the table at this point. Um, what I would say is that at times, actually, you said that Sunderland didn't really pose a threat. I do think that could be down more to perception of what Sunderland can actually do with their own product. I think there were times where, especially on the left, um, United looked a little bit, as the left side of Sunderland, that is with your right side. Germain yeah, they looked a little bit um, open. And I think at times that was where United were worried about letting Sunderland back into the game. Um, it's also that, let's bear in mind here, they're playing Sunderland. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that's obviously going to have a huge bearing on it as well. Uh, but the fantastic thing for United is that combination of the front four, the fact that, uh, we, we, you know, for, for weeks and maybe months, maybe even a year, we've been speaking about how Lou Van Gaal is going to start the side, where he's going to get the movement from, also the shape in which he wants them to play. And I don't know, there's something, I was asking a United fan again today, what's the difference between just a few weeks ago when it didn't look like the side got it as much and now... It can't just be the movement of Martial. It can't just be the movement of Memphis. Um, And I'm wondering whether it's the midfield that he's building on, the midfield shape. Um, Yeah, Kartik, let's get your thoughts on that because the one obvious thing that most Manchester United fans would point to is, look, we were generating chances for Rooney and they weren't working. And now we have somebody up there who is moving like a forward and finishing like a forward. And we've got people closer to their natural positions with Rooney as a number 10. And maybe that plus just the mere improvement explains why Manchester United now seems to be good for two, three goals a game, whereas before they would have to sit on one. Yeah, and the return of Michael Carrick has improved Schweinsteiger and Schneiderlin's play when they played. It seems like com- competitiveness for those central midfield spots and, and Carrick, who I still think is such a great reader of the game and, and what's coming in front of him, it ha- has made a, a big difference. Dropping Rooney back into a more natural role is, uh, is again, a, a beneficial now at, at, at this stage, early stage of Martial's Manchester United career. But I, I would reiterate that I think... Uh, They've made some some horrible errors in the transfer market. Now, they did re-sign James Wilson this week, so he's available for them, uh, the youngster. But uh, the, letting Chicharito go, he's already started well at Leverkusen. And Janusai had a good game for Dortmund today when he came on uh, for Royce in about the 50th minute of that game. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think Martial is going to hit a wall at some point, and then they're not going to have a striker solution unless they move Rooney back up top, play without a striker, start Wilson. And that's... Uh, that's something that they're going to face down the road. Mm. Lawrence, I want to ask you about Wayne Rooney because I think Kartik and I, we, we end up on different sides of the Wayne Rooney debate. Uh, Kartik has written well about how Wayne Rooney ultimately gets underappreciated, particularly by the English press. I tend to side more with your hardcore Manchester United fan that says that this guy most of the time looks like he should retire at this point. Uh, where, where do you fall in the Wayne Rooney debate? Uh, I fall on the side that I think there's an argument to be made in both camps. Um, that's not a side, the, that's the middle. 
Uh, no, well, yeah, that's aside. Still, um, it's still I, what I would say with Wayne Rooney is uh, there's the mercurial factor to it. There's also the the fact that Manchester United uh, maybe we're judging him. and We're just saying, well, you know, he he gets treated in the same way as everyone else. And I think the fact is that Rooney doesn't get treated in the same way as everyone else. In his day to day life, he probably doesn't get treated in the same way as everyone else. So why is our analysis for him the same as everyone else? Because maybe we expect him to hit the same heights that other players are hitting when they're getting paid as much or they're getting treated in such a great way. And so what I would say is having seen some of the people around him firsthand, not for a long periods of time, but also hearing firsthand accounts, it doesn't sound always like Wayne has got um, the best habits. Way. Uh, nothing. It's nothing even to do with Wayne personally. It's to do with what surrounds him. But it, you almost, you almost don't want to comment on those things, but it does. Mm. It, there does seem to be an issue there. I mean, it, it's this constant bloody marketing of him that I hate. Like, it really annoys me when the FA <laughs> put up a video that says emotional speech in the dressing room by Wayne Rooney. And you watch it and you think that that had all the emotion of like a carrot being chopped in a kitchen. There was nothing there. Like, and you just, and for that reason, I get frustrated because I think, well, there's some people who are clearly doing some very clever or not even clever. They're doing some very blatant PR here. Huh. And they're trying to skew things. And then there are some of us who are trying to analyse what's actually going on. And it's like a fight between the two. Hmm. And I, you get frustrated because one minute you think, well, wait a minute. And, and, there are, and you know, you don't want to disappoint people in the comments. There are people in the comments below who go, leave Wayne Rooney alone. He, you know, he's, he's, and his record is fantastic. And you're right, the record is fantastic. And he has done some great things. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be open to some form of criticism or some form of analysis. Hmm. And I, yeah, I think that's where I fall is that I'm, I don't know how realistic and how easy it is to analyze Wayne Rooney when you have an entire PR team trying to spin things. Hmm. So what you're saying is become, he has become England's Landon Donovan. Okay. That, that actually puts, you know what, puts in perspective. you know what, you know what? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of people who resent the influence of Wayne Rooney on the game. Well, I mean, I, it's it's gotten to the point where maybe the image and the marketing and the perceptions have moved so far away from the person that we're not we don't know if we're arguing about the the outline of Wayne Rooney anymore or Wayne Rooney himself. I mean, if you're arguing about the outline of Wayne Rooney, then you'd say, you know, that's changed quite a lot uh, over the past few years. But spin doctors do a great job. And I'd, I'd say that some people are also very open to be spun. Hmm. I would think most people are. Um, we're going to talk more about Manchester United at the top of the table when we list our top fours. But let's take a look towards Europe. Let's look at Spain, where the big news of the soccer weekend, unfortunately, happened early on Saturday in Barcelona, where Lionel Messi saw the quickest substitution of his career after suffering a torn interior cruciate ligament in his left knee against Las Palmas. Barcelona announced he'll be out seven to eight weeks, putting the season's first Clasico in jeopardy for Messi, and also giving a very thin Barcelona squad an even more difficult fall. More on that in a moment. Barcelona went on to win that game at the Nou Camp 2-1. to one. Real Madrid, for the second time this year, was held to a nil-nil draw, this time by visiting 10-man Malaga, which opened the door for Atletico Madrid or Villarreal to move to the top of the table. And surprising to some, or surprising to most, it was the Yellow Submarine who sit atop the Spanish table after their 1-0 win over Atleti. Leo Baptiste's early goal at the Madrigal helped Villarreal to win their fifth game in six games. They're still undefeated. And with Celta Vigo getting a point at Ibar... There are four teams within two points at the top of La Liga. 
So send that along to your two-team only league friend. Uh, in Italy, one of the bigger matches of the European weekend saw Juventus lose at the San Paolo 2-1 to Napoli, which wouldn't be such a big deal if there wasn't a growing feeling among Juve fans that they've seen this before from Max Allegri, the coach at Juventus. It's really not a fair comparison, but people are starting to talk about his time at Milan, which ended with the team disappointing for half a season in league while they were doing reasonably well advancing into the knockout rounds of Champions League. Of course, Juve is probably now the favorite in their Champions League group after winning at the Etihad a week and a half ago, but they're in 15th place in Italy, only have five points through uh, six rounds, and if Inter wins Serie A's late game, which as I understand they are not doing right now, uh, Juve will be 13 back through six rounds. Once again, it's a team that's lost a bunch of talent, just as Milan did, and Allegri may become a victim of his own success, even if he's not exactly faultless in Juve's decline right now. But uh, gentlemen, let's drop back to Spain. Let's talk about about Lionel Messi, uh, Kartik, Barcelona, through fault of their own, are a thin team for the next few months, and this injury yeah. to Lionel Messi is just going to exacerbate the situation. Yeah, they uh, obviously who were, came under a transfer ban from FIFA, and strangely enough, during that transfer ban, allowed Alex Song, not that he would have helped that much, but uh, it, it does create depth in the midfield, allowed Alex Song to go permanently to West Ham, and more importantly, sold Pedro to uh, Chelsea, which to me is still a stunner. I, I understand the player wanted to leave and, and was not happy at his lack of first-team chances after he'd been such an important core player for them in, in uh, the, really their glory era under Pep and had kind of fallen down the pecking order since Neymar and Suarez had signed. But uh, they maybe should have told Pedro, we'll sell you in January when we're able to register Arder uh, Turan and, and, and bring in maybe some other players on transfer. Now they're in this position where they're very thin, They've got multiple competitions they're in. They're going to have to just try and keep touch with Real Madrid. The assumption is uh, uh, until January. Uh, obviously, Rafinha's are also hurt, too. I should mention that. He's mm-hmm. out long term. So they've got a very thin squad. Fortunately for them, they're not in a very tough Champions League group, and they'll get out of the group. And maybe they'll get through this because uh, Real Madrid is, is, is throwing away results like they did uh, this weekend against Malaga. So uh, maybe they'll luck out. And then on the other hand, maybe uh, the the increased competitiveness at the top of the Spanish League could help them too as teams take points off each other. Atletico had a chance to uh, go into a tie for first this weekend, lost at a very good Villarreal team that has flown under the radar, but all of a sudden Villarreal is at the top of the table. You have other really good teams in Spain right now, even if Sevilla and Valencia are both struggling. Lawrence, the lack of depth with Barcelona is something that's been talked about all summer, but in a different way, they're actually a very deep team, at least in terms of their superstars. Yeah, the superstars, I mean, you'd imagine that when we speak about lack of depth, uh, we're speaking about the lack of depth in superstars, like you say. It's, we have a team of you know, very talented individuals, and that sets the bar very high. That doesn't mean that they don't have people who can't come in and do a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it, that's all down to perception, isn't it? But I, I would say that there's always a difference between the perception inside the Barcelona camp and the difference between the perception outside of that. And I, I do think that's something that, Catalonia almost affords them, if you like, because it's something that's almost unique to that region. And it's something that I'd imagine there are some other coaches in the world look at and think, God, I wish I could make that happen, you know? Yeah. Um, because it, I think it is beneficial, you know, that those guys politically and almost as a lifestyle as a city, they're used to feeling different. I mean, we see that politically. Kartik, I think you posted something not long about that, about the, the elections to do with Catalonia, right? Yeah, and, and there's certainly a uh, growing sentiment around the, the Barcelona, the city, and around the, the Catalan movement that there's this uh, 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 
longing for separation, a little bit of a persecution complex, uh, ju- justifiably so in some from some perspectives, not so much from others. Uh, I would actually encourage everybody to read Sid Lowe's book, uh, Fear and Loathing in La Liga, to get kind of a better perspective on, on the historical angle from both a Madrid perspective and a Catalan perspective on mm-hmm. Barcelona and Real Madrid and all of these kind of undertones to, 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 to the Classico and what we talk about every week in Spain. Yeah, Pitney is interesting because obviously he's seeing it as an outsider, so it sort of gives you another perspective. It is worth a look. Yeah, right before we hit record on today's show, the exit polling in Spain had showed that the uh, independ- the Independence Party had, well, it looked like they were going to claim as many seats as people were expecting, which just moves that ball a little bit farther down the road in Spain. So uh, something to keep track of because the politics of Spain are starting to become the politics of soccer around Barcelona. Uh, Gentlemen, let's move back to the Premier League. Uh, Let's give our players of the week. I'm going to go first this time. Uh, Alexi Sanchez had a hat trick for Arsenal, so maybe I'm trying to uh, trying a little bit too hard here not to go with the obvious, but I'm going to go with Santi Casola for Arsenal. It seemed like every time Arsenal was breaking out of their defensive third this weekend, Santi Casola was putting himself in the right place. And on Theo Walcott's goal, in particular, he plays the ball out to Metsud Ozil, makes a run up, takes the ball from Metsud Ozil, plays the ball right where Robert Huth can't get it. Theo Walcott has that nice left-footed finish far corner there, and it seemed like Carsola was doing stuff like that all game. Uh, Carsola is in a very interesting situation because his skill set probably doesn't lend itself perfectly to the role that he has with Arsenal, but he is doing a really good job distributing from that deep role, and I think in uh, Saturday's game, he really shined. So I'm going with Santi Carsola. Kartik. Yeah, I'm going with, uh, and this is a kind of a cumulative performance over the week uh, uh, with Rudy Justed of, uh, of uh, Aston Villa, who was a player wow. that had spent the last few years in the lower divisions and in, in the championship, first with Cardiff City, then with Blackburn. Uh, got better as time went on. First, it looked like he was just foiled from Jordan Rhodes when he got to Blackburn. Then he, he became a, a really good out-and-out uh, withdrawn striker in his own right, and then uh, moved to Aston Villa, a team that is not spending money the way they used to. Randy Lerner trying to sell that team and is giving uh, Tim Sherwood something in, in his system. He scored the, the lone goal midweek in the League Cup in the Derby against Birmingham City, and then he uh, came through big at, at Anfield yesterday. Really, his movement is why uh, he finished two chances, but his movement, his uh, his touches, really a guy that uh, one of these late bloomers who, who's a French-born player that flew under the radar been playing in lower divisions that that really could be an impact player in the Premier League this season, especially if Villa's going to make a go to try and stay up. Hmm. Lawrence, there are a lot of good people this week, right? Every time I do this on any show I'm on, I always think, can we do honorable mentions? Yeah, um, why not? Vardy, Vardy maybe deserves a, another mm-hmm. another mention. I know we mention him every week. Um, Daniel Sturridge, of course, with his kind of first proper Liverpool performance since. <laughs> Well, a long time. Um, and I think a lot of Liverpool fans were really relieved to see him back, not least Brendan Rodgers. Um, his movement, the way that he managed to put things together, you see why Liverpool have missed him so much. Um, and there's the problem is there's almost this constant um, worry around that he'll, kind of, he'll end up falling over any moment and sort of break. Um, and yeah, I know there's kind of like a nervous laughter around that, but it, it is sort of like Anfield can become quite a nervous place. And in recent years, it has become a lot more nervous. Um, but Liverpool fans appreciate him because he seems to really enjoy the game and seems to really enjoy what he's doing. Um, and I think that that's something that maybe they haven't seen in a lot of their footballers recently. Even Steven Gerrard, you know, I think it brings something out of what the, he's got an element of fouler about him 
Do you know what I mean by that? Mm. That he kind of, he looks like he's having a good time out there. Mm. And it's hard to find a Liverpool player that looks like he's having a good time right now. <laughs> um, so let's say Daniel Sturridge and some fantastic finishes from him. Some, a great, it's also great to see him as part of a front, English front two. Um, and what you hope is that he goes to the Euros next summer and starts for England, mm. I'd say. Some listener feedback. Uh, we have somebody who's made a couple of comments on our SoundCloud account. You can don't go- bother <laughs> SoundCloud.com slash World Soccer Talk uh, from Satman2059. I made a comment on an earlier podcast. Players like Diego Costa take advantage of no replays to tread a great line. Arson gets undue criticism for actually playing by the rules. Football needs technology and soon. And I think this is a fair criticism. He had mentioned before that we didn't talk about replay enough on the podcast. I'm not sure if I think that is a fair criticism. I'll let you guys comment on this. I just don't think there's anything new to offer the replay debate. So I'm not bringing it up on these podcasts. I will say that I'm very for video review and red cards, goals, in most situations I'm for it. I just don't think we have moments now that are like Frank Lampard's goal in South Africa that really moved the debate. And when those happen, we will discuss it. But I just think it's so tedious to continue to say replay, 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 mostly because while we can agree there's no no consensus on it, we're not moving the conversation just by talking about replay every time there's a contentious decision, Lawrence. Can can I also say one interesting thing with this is I met, um, not long ago, I worked with Andrew Asadi. Mm -hmm. Um, You guys know him. I don't know what he worked on in the States. And I'll be honest, I hadn't followed too much of his work in the States beforehand, just because it's difficult for England to follow those kind of things TV wise. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of aware of his presence and now he's work, works for FIFA pro and um, it, sorry, Carter, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, yes, he works for FIFA pro now. Yeah. He's, he's just a really insightful individual. Like someone that when you're around him, you kind of feel like he's working for football and you, you're sort of, you feel inspired when you're around him. Do you know what I mean? You're sort of like, wow, this guy's like really motivated to do this. And I sat, like, we had, we had quite a long drive in Europe and we kind of, you know, we sat talking about things for a while and he was kind of, you know, we were talking about the logistics of football and the way that things move. And I think he was sort of talking about, you know, the fact that he's now working with the media side of things and he works from the opposite side and he sees that, you know, journalists have to strike at a certain time. So he tries to equip them with the right things to be able to make their story good and interesting. But he was saying when it's not in the headlines, it's not that it's not interesting. It's just that it's not in your consciousness. And so just because we're not talking about it doesn't mean there aren't pencil pushers and other people trying to do something about it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I had the same insight just a few seasons ago when I went to the Euros with Adidas. Um, and I'm not name dropping there. What I'm saying is that was just a different level of access that I'd never had before. And so I became aware of a whole other circle of people who were working on things that weren't even public. Well, I, I think I think this is... And this, that would be my point there. Is yeah. Sorry, j- just to finish off, that would be my point there is that just because it's not in the headlines doesn't mean there's not so many people behind the scenes going, guys, I think we should be looking at video replays here. I think we should be... And just because we're not talking about it on the podcast, we're the, we're the most obvious of all the people to talk about it. And to some extent, we're the stupidest of them all because we barely have any day-to-day contact with the actual game. We're sort of, you know, the ones who just conflate issues. And, you know, essentially we make things more complex for the people behind the scenes because it's like, I wish we could just bypass you idiots like you know just talk about something interesting for once on your shitty podcast and you know actually say something interesting or you know go and do some research before we talk about it but if very often we don't have the chance to do that because you know we don't have the access to these people or they don't want to talk 
So just because we, I know I'm going on a very conflated, stupidly long issue here. What I'm saying is just because we're not talking about it doesn't mean things aren't happening around it. But I, also, I could have said that in two sentences. Yeah, I, I also think that, um, and Kartik, I'll let you give your feelings on replay. I think this is a an issue with the internet. The internet is a very broad place and um, we're not really reporting on things here. We're just giving our opinions and not everybody can be talking about the thing you want to talk about. And if you're on the internet, odds are somebody somewhere is talking about the thing you want to talk about. So I think that replay is a very valid topic. It's just not one that we're going to talk about every time Kevin De Bruyne is barely on side. And wow, did we need replay for that goal? Because Kartik, we would literally be talking about replay for every game. Yeah, and I, and, and I think that there would be too many stoppages. There are certain occasions, certain situations where replay, when there's a natural stoppage anyway, and I'm not talking about necessarily uh, offside calls, but uh, things like the cost of situation where replay maybe should be consulted. But I, 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 err, on this, I err on the side of caution here with, with replay. I think uh, uh, full-blown replay like you have in some of these American sports is, is very tedious. Ugh. The events become very difficult to watch. I, I basically quit watching most of those events. And it takes... Uh, you can't even it's even bad from a television angle because you can't uh, schedule things in, in tight windows anymore. And, and what happens is the college basketball games end up being two and a half hours when they used to be two college football games end up being five hours when they used to be three and a half, et cetera. So I'm I, I understand the proponents of replay and I want some increased use of technology in the game, but I'm not for full throttle replay. But the specific instance that uh, Satman is, is discussing uh, with that Chelsea uh, situation, yeah, maybe that that would have been uh, uh, the case. Yeah. To look when, at when play's already stopped, go go for it. Correct, correct. Can I can I can I just ask though, what is to, what's to stop us kind of having people as a safeguard? Someone in the referee's ear who's just so. For instance, this weekend, who was offside? Um, uh, the uh, Tottenham guy on the right. Well, um, I mean, Carl Walker was offside. I think offside, that's kind right? of the point, though, Lawrence, is that there's nothing to stop these things from happening, but. We've had these discussions. Nothing is moving forward on these things. So we end up having the same discussions all the time. Like, here's a potential solution. Why aren't we doing that? There's no answer to that. All we know is that nobody's doing anything on it. And we can talk about it every week because nobody's doing anything on it. But it doesn't do us any good. And we've got all these cool games to talk about. We've got all these results. We've got Daniel Sturridge coming back. And it becomes a bit tedious to always harp on replay every week. So Good point. Yeah, great point. So I, what, although I would say that the conversation... Um, the conversation comes to a place where uh, also it becomes incredibly navel gazy, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and uh, you know I think we've got to that point now, Richard. Yes, I think so too. So let's go ahead and shift back to the games. Quick hit three of these games so we can get to a discussion of Liverpool and Brendan Rodgers' situation. Southampton, Swansea, Kartik, three-one victory for Southampton. This is closer to what we usually expect from Saints, but it also is a little bit alarming that Swansea's potential that we saw over the first five matches of the season continues to wane. Yeah, and this came after Monk started Key and Cork together, which I, I was surprised by. Because I was, yeah, I was, I was shocked. It was an either-or thing, and it was uh, it was good to see Southampton, who we've had some concerns about and have been wobbly and are conceding goals like they haven't in the last few seasons, lock down and have a good defensive performance and be very good going forward. But Swansea, I'm a little bit concerned about it. It, it seems like they've lost their impetus and and, and they're not uh, they're not really playing well as a team, and and they're not. Uh, the, the the kind of movement we would see, ball movement, even side to side movement that that Leon Britton for years would keep alive on that team, we're not seeing from their midfield in, in games like the game Saturday. So I 
got some question marks about Swansea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lawrence, West Ham, Norwich. Uh, West Ham needed a very late goal from Chico Kuate uh, to get a draw here. And this, again, seems to fit patterns. Norwich is playing well every single week. I don't think we're surprised to see them get another point at another difficult location. West Ham playing up to and beyond elite competition, playing down to more mid-table competition. Yeah, really good point. A strange way of matching up their opposition. Um, but you'd also say that there's an incredible amount of um, talent in that side and what I'm really enjoying is watching the way that West Ham are playing right now sometimes I think especially in a game like this I found this way more did anyone else find this game more exciting than it seemed to be uh, analysed by other people yeah, but I think that's just a function of the yeah. other things that are going on this weekend unfortunately when you have two teams that even though West Ham is performing well as is Norwich that are probably going to finish in the middle of the table the long term perspective of the leagues means we're we're going to talk about a a relatively pedestrian Manchester United 3-0 victory uh, more than West Ham versus Norwich we we need we need a world soccer talk supplement that's what we need are we underestimating the quality of West Ham squad this season or is it just the combination of Billich and this West Ham squad we're underestimating hmm. Kartik I don't know. I, I think that there is a lot of quality in the squad. We're just still trying to figure out roles for guys. Mm. They've got, yeah, they've got exactly. a lot of new players. Yeah, yeah. They've got a new system, new manager. Uh, they've, they've transitioned uh, some of the, the old guys out of the team, like the Kevin Nolans. Andy Carroll's just working his way back to fitness. He did play a role yesterday in, in that comeback. So yeah. I think we're still trying to figure them out, but they're, get, they're getting mm. results. And it is, is it, it is still early. Like you pointed out earlier yeah. in the show, Lawrence, it is still early. Um, Kartik, Stoke finally got their victory 2-1 over Bournemouth, but the story here was an unfortunate injury very early on. Yeah, Callum Wilson, very serious-looking injury. They they allowed him to run it off, and mm, that might have horrible, made matters Horrible in replay. Yeah. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah, ho- horrible. Uh, maybe a bad decision from the physio there. Who knows? Now they've lost Max Gradle. Uh, Tyrone Mings and Callum Wilson were presuming for long-term injury. Uh, Bournemouth uh, continues to play well, but they're now getting really thin. And uh, those are three of maybe their top five players that that are out now. Mm. So it's going to be tough. Eddie Howe has worked miracles before. We've seen it. And he's he's one of the uh, best English-born managers we've seen in in a generation, in my opinion. But he's he's now really up against it. Wilson is out as long as we think he might be out. Uh, Gradle won't be back till February or March. Mings won't be back this season. Mm -hmm. Stoke got their first victory of the season, leaving the two clubs in the Northeast, Newcastle and Sunderland, as the only winless clubs in the league. Uh, Let's go to Anfield, Lawrence. 3-2 victory. Uh, Brendan Rodgers really needed this. I, I don't think we really have a good idea of how much pressure he is under, but uh, based on the patterns that we've seen with uh, Fenway Sports Group, what we've seen with other clubs, what we know about this position, I think it's fair to say that a club in Liverpool's situation would be justified in looking into options at this point. So the question underlying this victory is whether Brendan Rodgers did enough to um, to stay that execution, as I said in the intro. did Do you think he did enough? Uh, Liverpool's movement was much better. Uh, I think he'll again. There'll be what he will say is I, he feels like he got the squad back to a point where they can build from there, build from this point again. It felt a lot more like a Liverpool performance of maybe last season, which people were not very happy with, but it's still better than what they've seen maybe this season. Um, and the fact that Liverpool scored three goals would be incredibly promising for the Anfield crowd, especially through. Um, that, but it, again, it, it seems very temporary because of the status of the way that people are used to thinking about Daniel Sturridge, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it sort of it feels temporary right now, and everything feels like it. You know, 
that's one thing. That's one win after a series of very disappointing results. Um, but the point would be Liverpool aren't too far off the top. They're not too far away from the other, the, the pack, if you like. And that's not necessarily looking at the table, but it's looking at points total and saying, it, you know, at least it keeps them close. Um, and to some extent, I think the Liverpool squad knew they'd been very lucky earlier on in the season. Milner post-match as the captain was saying, you know, we feel like we've gotten past that bad luck now. And, I mean, he needs to acknowledge the good luck in that, but I think that maybe people are wondering if things had evened out over a couple of games and Liverpool have almost reset to zero. And Liverpool feel like last season was zero and this season anything beyond that will be building. Mm. So um, to that, for that reason, that's why the return of someone like Daniel Sturridge and his great combination with uh, Milner, Ings and Coutinho was all very promising. But again, there's still a lot of very aimless play from Liverpool. And I think that's what the Anfield crowd find very frustrating because aimless play does not go down well at Anfield. That's why McManaman was very often maligned um, and why sometimes, uh, you know, the, the, the weird Benitez signings like his Nunes, uh, Gonzalez, those kind of guys who didn't quite look like that bubble, who didn't quite look like they had an aim with the ball, were very often maligned. And so there won't be very much patience around Anfield if that sort of play continues because people need something at Anfield to rally around right now. It doesn't seem very much like sometimes they have that. Mm. Um, I know it seems like a fairly detailed, sometimes vague description, but when, uh, when Brendan Rodgers speaks in such ways, he gives everyone else rope to hang in by. And I think over the past week, they've written plenty of hanging articles. Mm. Kartik, did uh, Saturday's result do anything to change the Brendan Rodgers conversation from your point of view? No, he has yeah, to win. Exactly. He has he has to win at Goodison Park on uh, on on Saturday or Sunday. I'm, I'm, that next weekend, whatever that game is, uh, he has to win that match mm. against Everton. And if he doesn't, we go into an international break with a lot of questions. And the question... The overriding question, I think, has to be FSG. Can they secure someone who they think can take Liverpool uh, to the next level? Or are they going to have to just ride it out with Rodgers until the end of the season and make the change? But I think the change is inevitably going to come if they lose to uh, Everton. Some good individual performances. Uh, Daniel Sturridge had two goals. James Milner, Coutinho had a couple of assists. So uh, good sparks there. The back line, though, just on the first goal... Why are you playing a back three? Why are you playing and, a back three against, against yeah, that? And it's it, you're, this is the second week in a row where he's played a black back three against essentially a team that's playing a lone striker. So exactly. right there becomes a tactical issue as to what the trade-offs are of that. None of them picked him up. Um, and Just, the trade-offs of that were also that they, they numerous times... I mean, Lucas was incredibly... De- I know he was tracking the runner, but you think... Is Lucas really meant to be there? I know that, mm-hmm. like, the, the problem would be the analysis in a lot of the Liverpool um, vlog, blogs and stuff is Lucas had a great game. It's not good when your defensive midfielder is busy. Should we put it that way? It's <laughs> not good when he's busy tracking back. Right. It's good for him because well, well, he did well presence. because he covered he covered the mistakes of the of the back three. But but they uh, shouldn't be making those mistakes in the first well, place. Would be and, and the lack of familiarity between Skirtle and Sean on that first goal just shows you why you shouldn't be flip flopping between systems exactly. in the middle of a season. You have to have a lot of familiarity between players, and you would think that Skirtle and Sean have that familiarity from playing yeah. that system, but they obviously don't. I mean, that was just far too easy of a goal to be given up against a team the caliber of Aston Villa. The bottom line is there's just a lot of desperation in in Rodgers' tactics and his team sheets for the last four or five matches. It just smacks of desperation a guy who's under fire who's about to lose his job. The, the, The problem would also be that, you know, if you're playing a back three at home to Aston Villa, 
I know that that actually makes the rest, It maybe it pushes the team in a certain shape, which makes them slightly more attacking and gives other people a fri- slightly freer role. Klein, Moreno, maybe. Um, but uh, Emre Chan, a lot of people around Anfield would feel is wasted in that role. Yeah. Um, and, you know, especially against that midfield. And you uh, just, just very, very simple tactical things um, that you don't want to patronise Rodgers with because he clearly has an idea, but it's that execution. And that's mm-hmm. where Danny Murphy and all the other Liverpool players down the years that Rogers technically is sort of called out more recently has have said where's your game management mm-hmm. and I know that's a very vague term but again mm-hmm. we saw or a lack of it um against against uh, against um Aston Villa and the idea would be a few years ago Liverpool didn't have a great amount of game management and Gerard alluded to that in his biography that's one of the few useful things that Gerard's actually said recently um he's alluded to that more recently and in recent years Suarez and Sturridge have allowed him not to have that game management <laughs> they've allowed him not to have, they've allowed him not to have that game management because essentially what he, what they've managed to do is score goals yeah well Balotelli's right. calling out um Rogers tactical naivete earlier this year too which we all dismiss as somebody being disgruntled but uh, a couple things with Rogers like Kartik was hinting at he keeps he goes back to these these security blankets and unfortunately security blankets always yeah. end up with teams yeah, that yeah, don't yeah. really defend that well and that was something that you were so high on at the beginning of the year Lawrence and now it seems like we're back to Rogers old teams uh, so it remains to be seen if we really are just back to old Rogers well old Rogers wasn't good enough and that's only going to push the decision a little bit farther down the road uh, let's check in on, on Europe one last time uh, Germany saw its own change at the top midweek after Robert Lewandowski's five goal outburst against Wolfsburg pushed Bayern past Dortmund at the top of the table Bayern won this weekend at Mainz thanks to two more goals from Lewandowski up to a league leading 10. Bayern increased their lead to four points at the top of the table when Dortmund drew against Darmstadt. That's still newly promoted Darmstadt, only having one loss this season, Darmstadt, and that was to Bayern. Um, They got two goals at BVB. Uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang scored twice for Dortmund. He's up to nine goals on this season. Those two teams, Bayern and Dortmund, meet next week, but Bayern already has a four-point lead on Dortmund. Very uh, concerning there for BVB. In France, uh, PSV were given an 11th-minute scare at Nantes, thanks to Yassine Bamou, but they responded with four goals in the second half, Ibrahimovic, Cavani, Di Maria, and Serge Allier. Uh, the 4-1 win left them four points up in the league, but Saint-Étienne was kicking off at the same time that we started this podcast. They were at a hot, they were against Hatem Ben Arfa and Nice. Uh, gentlemen, let's go back to England. Last segment of the show, uh, our top fours. Definitely a lot to think about this week with City's second consecutive loss, an impressive performance by Spurs. Don't forget Everton, who who play, two who play on Monday. But Cartes, let's go ahead and start with you. On form and your top four at the end of the season. My top four on form are United, Spurs, Arsenal, West Ham. And my end of the season top four, I guess I'm hedging now, and I'm going Chelsea one, which I know is going to be super controversial. Ooh. Uh, two Ch- uh, City, three United, four Spurs. Uh, that's just a switch of City and Chelsea from last week. I did have Spurs ahead of Arsenal last week. I know they lost midweek. And we're going to hear from all the Gunners supporters, right? So I might as well address it right here. Yeah. I know they lost midweek at White Hart Lane in, in, in that uh, League Cup match. And again, uh, Spurs have some sort of mental block when it comes to playing Arsenal. 
there is a uh, an issue there, but I think they just right now have a better team. And if Pochettino can continue to get performances out of these youngsters and Lamella continues to improve and now Erickson is back and fit and, and Chadley can play a role, I, I, I think this team is going to finish in the top four. Mm-hmm. Well, my top four on form, uh, with company and Silva kind of close but still out indefinitely, it seems like. It seems like they're constant game time decisions. I've got Manchester United number one, Manchester City two, Spurs then Arsenal. Uh, at the end of the season, still have City number one. I'm becoming more convinced that United actually has something to say here. I have Arsenal number three, which is higher than I've ever had them before because I'm starting to think that Chelsea is looking like a Di Matteo, Villas-Boas, Filipao year at this point. And I was very close to putting Spurs above Chelsea, but I have Chelsea number four. Lawrence? This is a hard weekend to do it, isn't it? Um, It always is. No, I don't know. Um, You know, I want to go this weekend. I'm going to go... um, Arsenal, I'll go uh, Spurs, I'll go, uh, who else will I go? I'll go Southampton, and I'll say Liverpool in fourth. At the end of the season, I'm seeing it as Manchester City, uh, I'm seeing it as Manchester United, I'm seeing it as Chelsea, I'm seeing it as Arsenal in top four. Mm-hmm. So pretty similar top fours, especially when you consider mm-hmm. probably both of us have Spurs, uh, very close to where Kartik does in fourth place. Uh, gentlemen, one of the games that we didn't talk about was the game on Sunday. Uh, Lawrence, late penalty, decides this one. Neom brings down Wilfred Zaha, Yohan Kabai from the spot. one nothing victory, Crystal Palace over Watford. Did the official get the call right? Do we have to discuss whether the official got the call right? Or I guess not? it doesn't matter. I mean, he I made the call the regardless. Is, I've not seen. I've not seen the replay enough. Um, yeah, and it was right. It was right on the line. In fact, what made this so controversial is the ball was not actually in the penalty area, but Wilfried Zaha was in the penalty area when he was fouled. At least that's what the ruling was. So by the book, it was actually a very good call. But you can actually see why it was also very controversial. Yeah. Um, one thing I would say is that from what I could see um, of the. The, the front line from Crystal Palace, uh, I would say that they were they were exactly what Alan Pardew wants them to be, which which is this this incredibly threatening side. I think Balassi is still an incredibly dangerous player um, for for Crystal Palace, and I think when it comes down to what Watford actually offered in this game, I, I felt like I felt like they, these are the kind of games where they need to be playing up to to the, the standard of opposition that they have, and where they should be expecting to at least get a point. I think they'll be disappointed to concede um, a, a penalty in in such a fashion, like such a controversial fashion. But one thing I would say is the way that the way that again Crystal Palace managed to enforce themselves on the game through the shape of the midfield is showing what quality what buying just one quality player can change about your entire game plan. Hmm. Kartik, let's move on to the other uh, to Monday's game because we want to spend a good amount of time talking about Champions League before we close the show. You and I have talked about it. Everybody has talked about it. We just happen to agree with it. Everton against a team that's going to play to them is very dangerous. Against a team that's going to bunker and force Everton to play through them, not as dangerous. Tony Pulis, West Brom, Everton is there on Monday. So, is there any reason to think that this story is going to be different for Everton? Um, probably not. I think it's we're looking at, at a likely nil nil. Unfortunately, I mean, this is this is the sort of game where Everton doesn't break down the opposition, and maybe maybe there's a there's a counterattack. Berahino's back in Pulis's good graces. He's going to play. Uh, Rondon obviously has, has gotten off to a decent start in English football, so maybe they get a counterattacking goal in West Brom. But it, it's uh, it's a concern for Everton, and they also I think the Monday game coming the week before they've got Europa League midweek. 
Uh, no, excuse me, they're not in Europe this year, thank goodness. But they've got uh, the, the Derby, the Mer- Merseyside Derby coming up this weekend. Maybe an eye toward that, especially given what we've talked about regarding mm-hmm. Liverpool. Everton's record, even the seasons under David Moyes towards the end of his tenure, where they finished ahead of Liverpool on the table, they could never beat Liverpool. They, they, in a lot of cases, they couldn't even get draws against Liverpool at Goodison. So I, I think that there might be a little bit of uh, looking ahead to that uh, among the players, if not Martinez himself. Mm-hmm. Champions League week, a Europa League week, as you're t- as you mentioned, uh, Tottenham and Liverpool are active in Europa League on Thursday. We're, of course, going to concentrate on Champions League. Tuesday games see Olympiacos at the Emirates to take on Arsenal. No patronizing of the opponent this time. Every Champions League game is a dangerous one for Arsenal at this point. Chelsea is going to be at Porto, obviously a meaningful game for Jose Mourinho. And something from people from this part of the world to look at as Porto could likely start Hector Herrera, Miguel Layun, Layun uh, Tecatito Corona. One of the big matches that uh, those three will have before Mexico and the U.S. face off in Pasadena on October 10th for a spot in the 2017 Confederations Cup. The Wednesday games are a little bit more interesting, guys. Kartik, I'm going to start with you. Manchester City at Borussia Mönchengladbach, one of the worst teams in the big uh, five or six leagues in Europe before Lucien Favre stepped down last week. Andre Schubert has two wins in a row for Gladbach. All of a sudden, uh, what looked like was going to be a mild trip now looks like a dangerous one. Right, and and given the form of the other teams in the group, uh, Sevilla and Juventus, uh, Gladbach now looks like they might be the toughest ask for City in this group, although, of course, City's already lost to Juve, but uh, Sevilla not off to a good start in Spain uh, for those no. who are not following La Liga. Uh, I, this is going to be a very tough game. The, the manage, management change came at the wrong time for Manchester City. City, with all these injuries, not sure what the status of Silva is going to be company for that match yet. Yaya Torre looks like he might have a hamstring pull, and I... I, I hate to keep coming back to this point. Uh, it, it's been discussed for five years or six years, however long he's been with the club. But when Yaya Torre doesn't play, Manchester City, just they're not the same club. They're not very good. And they're very, very pedestrian. And it's um, even though people complain about his, his laziness on the pitch and the, 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 their simple lazy, uh, analysis given about him, the influence in, in terms of results is unmistakable. And we've seen every time he goes off to the Cup of African Nations, inevitably City drop, lose ground against the, the opposition. And if he's out long term, it's going to be a big problem for, for the club of, with uh, this game. Yeah. Fortunately for City, Newcastle at the weekends, the game should win at home regardless of who they put out there. But uh, this is going to be a tough one. Yeah, we didn't even mention that when talking about the big game of the weekend. First goal early in the first half, uh, Toure sets up uh, De Bruyne and never looks the yep. same after that. Something muscular, something happened, but he had to be maybe on that. Yeah, maybe on that run. Yeah. Um, the other match, Premier League base this uh, week, Lawrence midweek. Uh, one of the biggest ones in Manchester United's group, Wolfsburg, is visiting it, and this one looked pretty dangerous too. But Wolfsburg has lost their best player, Kevin De Bruyne, obviously going to Manchester City. Julian Draxler came over for Schalke, doing okay, but not doing as good as De Bruyne was, who was the best player in the Bundesliga at the time that he uh, was sold. So all of a sudden, between that, Manchester United coming into their own, this kind of emerging narrative that Manchester United might be a better team in Europe than they are in the Premier League, all of a sudden, this looks like a game that is dangerous for United, but one that maybe they should win at Old Trafford. Yeah, you'd certainly hope that they were winning at Old Trafford, especially considering the results that Wolfsburg have had more recently. Um, I mean, I know they won in the Champions League. They won 1-0 at home to CSKA um, in the first round of the Champions League. But then their past two results, obviously uh, it, losing 5-1 uh, was quite a disappointing mm. result. But then you'd say that was a bit of a freak result, huh? Yeah. Um, how, how often uh, is a guy going to score five goals in nine minutes? 
I mean, sign him up. Yes. Um, and he's uh, the the annoying thing is that he may not be at this summer's Euros. Mm. Um, although that that would that would really be down to Scotland catching them, which I guess is a British perspective on uh, wanting Scotland to catch Poland as opposed to um, you know the other way around. Um, he will be there, and I hope he does well. Um, anyway, uh, they then they then drew against uh, Hanover. So there's there's been this kind of uh, there's been a couple of disappointing results. Um, not only that, but I think Wolfsburg have been struggling a little bit this season to actually get things firing and get it, get some consistent results strung together. Um, for that reason, I think the Manchester United will outplay them. I still think that there is. There's almost the FA Cup esque side to playing uh, English sides in Europe. I don't know if you feel the same with Man City, Kartik, but it's kind of like, you know, if we play up to these guys and we get the result, then that's really going to help us kick on because they're, you know, it's almost like English sides are open to, for the taking there. And I think Wolfsburg will see Manchester United mm. in the same way. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, and, and I mean, I talked about that a little bit this weekend on week on divers and cheats again. Romantically, as a football fan, I, I think Europe is, is, is the ultimate prize and, and winning the Champions League is the ultimate prize. As a realist, with where we are in 2015, coming from an English perspective, the league is more important. The importance of league games is more important than the Champions League. And it's not that case. That's not the case anywhere else in Europe. OK, uh, the, the, the Champions League is more important for the Spanish clubs than La Liga mm. is. Uh, the Champions League is more important for the German clubs than, than the Bundesliga is. It's just the Premier League has become such a behemoth in terms of television money, uh, visibility around the globe, etc., that it, it does have a bit of an FA Cup feel to it. You're right that, that uh, you get club, uh, clubs from second-tier leagues or, or lesser, less fancied sides like Gladbach, Sevilla, these sorts of teams, uh, Wolfsburg from uh, the big leagues, and you're in a position where it has a very FA Cup feel to it. I, I, that's a great piece of analysis, Lawrence. That's absolutely correct. And one of the effects of European competition is always when those teams come back from Europe on the weekend, the matches become a little bit more interesting as those teams have to juggle their lineups. Of course, as Kartik has alluded to, one of the more interesting matchups next weekend will see Liverpool on short rest after playing on Thursday, going to Goodison Park to take on Everton. After that happens, we will be with you again on Sunday with another edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. But until then, for Lawrence McKenna, Kartik, enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is produced by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley and is a production of WorldSoccerTalk.com. For more information on the show, check us out at WorldSoccerTalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at WorldSoccerTalk or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at LawsCast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA737. And I'm at Richard Farley. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.